0: This is the Bill Kelly Show Podcast. Susan Claremont, uh, who's a columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, who really needs no introduction, uh, has written a column uh, in today's Spectator about um, the West 5th uh, St. Joseph's uh, Healthcare Facility, the psychiatric hospital, um, trying to avoid suicides. The, the mountain facility, which is a beautiful facility, was built to be safe. And, and yet last year, uh, three inpatients died by suicide within the hospital. Not sure what all of this means, but it's certainly uh, something that uh, is worthy of a discussion, and I'm sure that's why Susan uh, wrote about it. Susan Claremont, columnist with the Hamlin Spectator, joins us on the line now. Susan, nice to speak with you again. Good morning, Kamie. So the idea for this column was born out of what, Susan?
1: Well, I, I've written a number of columns recently about um mental health and suicide and it began with a, a very long story that i did uh, a few weeks ago about a young woman named nicole patnow nicole was 20 years old and uh, uh, mentally ill and she jumped off a bridge onto highway 403 and um, died by suicide and i learned in the course of, of reporting that story that the day she died she was on a day pass from the West Fifth Campus of St. Joe's. Mm-hmm. So that led me into looking at um, uh, suicide rates amongst uh, St. Joe's patients, and St. Joe's released a report uh, a couple of weeks ago about that issue as well. So right. all of that led up to St. Joe's, inviting me for a tour of their facility to to look at it in the terms of um, patient safety.
0: I think, first of all, I think this is a great, and and we'll dig into. Uh, I, I want people to read your column in the in the Spectator today, but we'll we'll dig into your column a little bit here uh, on this program, if you don't mind, because I I think it's I think it's really great. It paints quite a um, uh, a visual a picture for people um, from the inside out. But I I've got to ask you this at the top. Up. You are reputed in our city to be a columnist that people are fearful of, and and there's and there's good reason for <laughs> well, I think that I think you make people nervous because because you're very detail oriented and and you very very often um, get the details very very correct, and and uh, I, I wondered, uh, were you surprised that that Saint Joseph's kind of Brought a group together and said, "Let's reach out to her and bring her in before you had to go and ask for a um, a tour." Not that there's anything wrong with our f- people at St. Joseph's Healthcare, but you know what I'm saying? Like they 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 seem to be welcoming you in, and I think it's probably because they knew you were going to write anyway.
1: Well, I have to say, St. Joe's has been um, very helpful on these stories. Yeah, yeah. These, these are these are tough stories, and St. Joe's is at the heart of it. Right. Uh, but they have not shied away from it. They they sat down with me and spoke at length um, for the story about Nicole Patno. With the permission of her family, uh, and that's and, their
0: track record, uh, isn't it? For the most part, they're they're pretty accessible. Uh, the people there, they, they're pretty good at communications generally.
1: I, I honestly can't I, I can't comment on that. Um, okay. I don't deal with St. Joe's very often, um, so this is my first dealing in recent memory with with them, and they've been quite helpful and transparent and open. Uh, uh, though not as much as I would like, but, um, more than I, more than I would have predicted. Okay.
0: All right. (laughs) Okay, good. So we've, we've covered, I think it's important to kind of cover that bit off before we, before we carry our conversation on, on any further. Um, I think that, um, I, th- I think you've really as i said before have done a good job of of describing uh, what it's like there so so let's get into it this this facility as you point out was built to be safe it it is a from the outside uh view it's a brand new spanking new shiny new looking place and yeah. um from the inside uh, is that reflected as well tell me what you saw when you went in tell me how the tour went
1: yeah, it, it is an absolutely beautiful facility. That's for sure. Um, it's it's open and bright, lots of natural light. Um, you, you know, it does not in any way resemble the hospital of old, and particularly not the old. Psychiatric hospital, which I had been in uh, numerous times for stories, and it yeah. was a, it, it, you know—I have to say, it was a pretty horrifying place. It was,
0: it, it was, was, yeah,
1: it, yeah, dark and creepy and not at all pleasant. So, so this is nothing at all like that. This is a place that um, that I felt comfortable being, that was um, that was pleasant to be in. So, um, so there's that aesthetically quite pleasing. Um, but the tour that I went on was, was aimed specifically at, at looking at patient safety. So, um, you know, you know that you are in a, a psychiatric facility when the first door locks behind you. And, you know, the hallways are, there's, there's a series of locked doors. One door won't open until the other one is locked behind you. And that's sort of the first clue that you have that... Um, that this is a, a facility where uh, patient safety is a is an issue that is being addressed.
0: Okay, and and um, you mentioned uh, in in the column, and again, let's remind our listeners that um, the, the reason we're discussing this and the reason you're writing about it is there have been uh, three inpatient uh, suicide deaths within the hospital um, in the last year, and yet they have all of these. They've, they've done their very, very best to to put the very best practices, the best uh, a low technology, high technology in place to to prevent that. So talk about some of those things. I mean, uh, you go into some of these rooms and describe um, how those rooms uh, look and, and what things we might consider to be, um, what would you call them, tools perhaps of suicide that they've erased from those rooms.
1: Right. So the most... Um Common way for patients to die by suicide within a, a hospital setting appears to be um, uh, by ligature so mm-hmm. hanging uh, so the hospital is designed to to try and take away any opportunity for that to happen so uh, in the patient room for example the light fixture on the ceiling is completely encased, and there is nothing, um, you, you, can't, you can't touch a light bulb, you can't touch an outlet, you can't hang anything from the light fixture. Um, the uh, bathroom, there is no shower faucet, uh, shower head. It's just a hole in the in the wall from which the the water comes out. So there's nothing there that you can you can hang something from. Um, it was pointed out to me that you know you, you might sort of intuitively think that you just have to be concerned with things that are up high, uh, but in fact, um, you know you can technically hang yourself from something down low as well. So. So the faucets on the sink have been removed, and there there are um, water comes from a hole in the wall. Uh, Temperatures are adjusted by buttons, so there's nothing there that you can you can tie something to. The grab bar by the toilet um, is just actually a solid sort of uh, brick in the wall. Um, that you can hold on to but you couldn't tie anything to right. door handles are levers you can't tie anything to them without without the, the door handle moving and and a knot slipping off so uh, great attention to those sorts of details that frankly you and I probably wouldn't even think about
0: so how did how did the um, the hospital officials uh, s- sort of uh, explain to you how those? suicides occurred did they get into what methods were used or anything like that or does that get into patient confidentiality
1: yeah and so earlier when i said i wish there there had been some things i'd be a little more open about and yeah that's that's it right there okay so we don't Um, know how we don't know and you know i i need to say that i'm not interested in any way in breaching patient confidentiality i don't know who these patients were. Um, I'm not interested in learning who they are, unless the families would like to speak with me. Um, So that's not what I'm after. But I, I would like some indication of what actually happens here. Because how is our how are we as the public going to know that the problem has been fixed if right. we don't know what the problem
0: was? But here's the question. If we know by the numbers, you, you're indicating here three in, inpatient suicides um, last year at the new facility, how does that compare to numbers on an annual basis in the old gloomy facility that we discussed right. earlier?
1: That's a great question, and one that, unfortunately, I don't think anyone can
0: answer.
1: One of the things I've learned during uh, the course of these stories is that uh, Canada has not done a particularly good job of tracking these incidents, so there's no way, no easy way, for example, to compare the number of inpatient suicides at one hospital with another.
0: That's disturbing in and of itself, do you not think? That, that they're not collecting is. they're not collecting accurate data on this stuff.
1: I, I think each individual hospital is, but there's no central registry. Mm. So so up you know um, apart from calling and speaking to every single hospital in Canada, and and probably even then you wouldn't get all your answers. You would have to file freedom of information requests um, to to get those kinds of numbers, and then crunch all the numbers. And and frankly, that's a great. You know, project for a journalist to do, but I have not taken that on. Um, there is no easy way to compare data, so I hope that that's one of the things that we're going to see change. Um, you know, I think St. Joe's would be open to that idea. They themselves have raised that issue that mm-hmm. it's difficult to make comparisons and to to get a picture, a big picture of. Um, how widespread the issue is because we just aren't keeping the numbers that way.
0: Yeah, and we don't. I mean, there could be suicide, deaths by suicide happening in in regular acute care hospitals that aren't that don't have a necessarily a psychiatric specialty attached to them as well. So, so we don't sure. know. And and the other thing, of course, that that comes that jumps to mind for me in in this is, you know, I, I guess Susan and I say I guess underline exclamation mark. Because I don't know. I guess if if you really want to do it, you're going to find a way.
1: Well, there are two schools of thought on that, and and that's one of them. You know that, that these are these patients are um, some of the most profoundly ill psychiatric patients in our community. That's why they're at the hospital. Yeah. Um, and you know, I know from uh, Speaking with Nicole's family the woman that I wrote about yeah that was a Um,
0: that was well done on that as well and 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 to her family to come forward like that 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 people should go back and read that story anyway carry on Uh,
1: thank you Jamie I, I appreciate that um Nicole had uh tried to die by suicide many times before um she actually did take her own life so um you know Yes, uh, these are difficult people to to help and, and difficult people um, to watch over. But the other school of thought is, you know, what do we tell people who have suicidal thoughts? We tell them to go to the hospital. We tell them that that's where they will be safest, right. where, we'll, yeah. where that's where they, they will get help. Um, so, you know... Is is one suicide in a hospital okay? Is is two okay? Or should we always be thinking about zero? And the message that St. Joe's has very, very clearly sent is that um, is that we should be looking at zero suicides. Mm-hmm. Is anything more than that is unacceptable? So so I applaud St. Joe's for that. Um, they've made that loud and clear. Now it's a matter of how do we get there.
0: Susan Claremont, uh, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, uh, one that everybody should read uh, today, uh, West 5th Psychiatric Facility, trying to avoid suicides. Uh, As always, uh, thank you very much for spending some time with us. I know you're busy and I do appreciate you coming on the program as always, Susan. Uh, All the best and good luck to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, London, Ontario, uh, swimming pools remove signs banning kids over the age of three from opposite sex change rooms. Uh, They are uh, backtracking on signage that was placed outside of change rooms at municipal pools that say uh, that children over the age of three cannot be in the bathroom uh, of their Opposing gender. Some parents were upset about that, saying uh, this is all a security issue uh, for them. I want to bring Theo Sellis in, a registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works, good friend of this program. Theo, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you, Jim. And thanks for calling me a friend. Yeah, very well, kind of you. It's very warm greeting. Thank the, you. You're welcome. <laughs> Theo, um, so this story about uh, signs and pools and people getting uncomfortable is this a symptom of something bigger? Like, is, is everything, you know, for years and years and years, decades, people have been doing this. They've been taking their, you know, if a, if a woman has her little boy or her son with her and she's got to, you know, use the rest facility or he does, then she's chances are is going to take that boy into the ladies' room to attend to him right? And it's been the same with little girls and their fathers. What's wrong with that? I don't know what's wrong with that. <laughs> yeah.
2: You got me there. But um, have things changing? I mean, obviously, uh, one of the things that's changed is that people have had this whole question of gender and sex called into question in terms of whether or not we should have different facilities or universal facilities. Some people feel off-putted by that. And you use the word uh, uncomfortable. Uh, we're also living in a culture where, you know, when you moment you feel uncomfortable about something, then you immediately have to take to social media and form a crusade. So, uh, And everyone's to toying around to make sure people aren't feeling uncomfortable. And we have to understand with progress, with um, extending rights that people have, there are going to be some changes as well. And that is going to constitute some discomfort for people who ordinarily haven't felt comfortable. And yeah. so the whole whole move towards you know universal bathrooms, for instance, um, is going to lead some people and I've seen some of the comments that people have made around these things. They we say, well, that's just weird. I don't know how I feel about that. That's just kind of... I'm not used to that. That's not normal. And so that's part of the growth that people have to um, open up to that they're going to be challenged to step outside of what they're usually comfortable with and think about other people and their needs a little bit more
0: I'll tell you what I, I tell you what I think it is at the, the base route and you can you know jump in obviously I, I I think this has got a lot to do it's a hunch with with people uh, increasingly isolating themselves meaning not that using a public washroom was a social event by any means but um, you know, it, it, the, people want more and more privacy. We're a more and more private society. We, we don't want anybody in our business. We don't want anybody around our business. And that includes, you know, change room, washroom, uh, business. You're starting to see even, even in men's rooms, you know, you'd see, go into a men's room and you'd see a lineup of, of urinals on a, on a wall. Well, now it's almost always you go in now and you see you, you've got these little walls up between the urinals to, to add privacy. Um, you've got the advent of these family washrooms uh, in malls and at rest stops and, and that kind of thing. Are, is this a symptom of uh, or a sign that we are increasingly wanting to silo ourselves?
2: I don't know. I have not, honestly, We're shy. I, have not, I have not thought of it in those terms. I'm, I am I, I, I. really am not sure that that's necessarily the case. I'd, I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I. You know, I, I do think that the continued sort of, you know, discomfort people have around the issue about uh, who's in the washroom with us mm-hmm. still is, Based on some really misguided notions around what are all the possible things that could go wrong? Like, what is it that you are actually worried about happening? What What, do you, what are you protecting yourself or other people right.
0: yeah.
2: from? And and so, what's that all about? And what and what does that tell you about your assumptions? And so, uh, there's really no evidence that suggests that there's any risk to you personally if someone comes into the washroom that. Looks differently than how you would expect someone to be looking to be in the same washing as you, and and part of that also is the continued confusion between what constitutes sex and gender. So, right on the poster that was put up, they talked about opposite sex, and then on their Facebook, the City of London's Facebook page, they referred to it as opposite gender. It's very it can, speaks to this continued sort of misconception about what these things are, and uh, and and it speaks to the need of education for that because you can't. There's no way that you can prevent safeguard someone coming in who somehow from the opposite gender, there's no way of knowing what gender that person is, gender, by looking at them. You can't, I mean, it might be some clues, but at the same time, you don't know what gender is because gender is a personally held uh, experience of what it's like for that particular person. We typically think of sex as more of the biological characteristics of people as opposed to the more, this is what it's like for me, this is who I feel like I am. And so I think a lot of this still is rooted in misinformation and and, and just kind of going with biases as opposed to educating themselves
0: and that's that's going to be a, a, a sharp incline that uh, road to understanding and, and being educated is it not Theo I mean there this is um, th- this is a tough one we don't do we don't do well we haven't done well historically with you know educating people on even differences between men and women. Uh, let alone, uh, you know, people who have spe- very specific uh, gender identifications uh, that need to be understood and respected. We're we're living in pretty, um, pretty confusing times to to a lot of people. And 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 how do you tackle that within uh, that education that you so rightfully point out needs to be done within the. Um, infrastructure of communication and education that we currently have here in Canada.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and it's kind of sad because there's no end to information that is available to people about this. I mean, all you have to do is do a quick Google search and, you know, you know, Google some of the terms that are, that are used. You want to Google the difference between gender and sex, for instance, Google it, you'll find all kinds of great information, all kinds of great links. And, uh, um, and so, Part of the reason, I think, though, is that we still have these sort of issues. We still have, you know, we still have body, uh, nudity, physicality, sexuality intertwined with morality, and there's certain things we're supposed to be able to talk about, and certain things we just don't, and some things just have to be kept private, and, and some people are immoral if they don't believe the same things and all that kind of stuff, so we have to kind of challenge ourselves a little bit to be more open-minded and to challenge our our biases a little bit and and really understand the experience of some of the people that are saying, look, um, you know, we've been excluded for a very long period of time and and we are the ones that are at risk. You're not at risk. The majority of people aren't at risk. The people who are trying to be included are much more at risk from the people who have traditionally been saying, well, this is what I'm comfortable with. And so we just need to really challenge ourselves a little bit more
0: to be a little bit more open-minded, and so you sort of see where our biases are. All right. Theo Salas, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Thank you so much for being with us here uh, today, as always, to uh, put some uh, insight out on the table on on some of these issues that, uh, that come up. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jimmy. Take, you care. take care. Bye-bye.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Canada is expected... Um, to lead all G7 countries this year in the global economy, according to the International Monetary Fund. Uh, questions are, what does that mean for the average Canadian like you and I? Will we see any benefit? Michael Veal's a professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University and joins me now. Michael, welcome back to the program. Uh, glad to be here. So, um, okay, for, for most of us, uh, you know, looking at um, – uh, reports about the world economic outlook put out by the International Monetary Fund make most of our eyes glaze over. Can you take us through this and uh, explain uh, what it is that's important about this and and why uh, it's expected that Canada will lead uh, the G7 in economic growth?
3: So basically it's modestly good news it's a confirmation that the Canadian economy is on the right track I think we have to remember there's an important regional aspect and that Alberta with uh, lower lower oil prices is probably not doing as well. British Columbia, Ontario are doing uh, a little bit better, uh, bringing up the average some for the country as a whole. But on balance, it's it's good news, but it's not spectacularly good news. It's still pretty modest growth. Uh, It's not the sort of growth that Canada had in some 60s, 70s, 80s. It's, it's more like the modern, the new normal of low growth.
0: Okay, so um, uh, again, uh, what does this mean to the average person on the street? What, what, what benefit will we see out of this? Well,
3: it will mean that uh, we expect unemployment rates will continue to tick down. Again, it won't be dramatic. We will expect that uh, incomes will continue to go up, not in anything dramatic. It's not a bonanza, but it's it's positive news. It suggests that a recession is a little bit more unlikely, uh, that the Canadian economy is a little bit more robust. And as I said, probably particularly uh, this part of the world, because we aren't going to have the, the down drag that's being caused by the uh, lower oil prices. The other thing we should remember is that some of this is just a little bit of a bounce back effect. If you go back a year ago, uh, Canada actually had negative growth for a period. And that was largely attributable to the the fires in Fort McMurray, uh, which cut off the oil industry. And if you're not producing as much in the oil industry, that obviously Mm -hmm. reduces national production. Uh, Now that oil industry is fully back on stream, and so that's part of the reason that Canada is doing a little bit better. I think aside from that, we would not be particularly better than the other countries, but it is good news that the G7 as a whole is mostly in a growth mode. Uh, Japan, that had been doing very poorly, is doing a little bit better. Uh, France and Germany are sort of solid middling. The United States, while they're talking about being slightly less optimistic than they were before, is still uh, producing some growth. And typically, Canada, being a trading nation, does well when other trading nations are doing well.
0: Alberta was a boom place for a while uh, with the oil, and then the world price of oil dr- dropped. How, how, how are we affected by that? In, in our, and you said that you know, the oil industry is, is, uh, is bouncing back. Um, how, f- how far are we going to bounce back, do you think? So I probably shouldn't have said it bounced
3: back fully because even though the fires ended, the oil price being low means that they aren't as enthusiastic in production as they might normally be. In Ontario, I think there's kind of two factors one factor is that we observe the gasoline prices are lower than they were a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gives people money to spend on other things, and that tends to be good for the Ontario economy. Uh, the bad news is that Alberta also contributes a lot to the national coffers in terms of the tax revenue from the uh, booming oil industry. And now when the oil industry is not booming so much, they're obviously not as big contributors, and that worsens the fiscal position of the country as a whole. So for Canada as a whole... It's actually a negative when oil prices go down, because we're a net exporter of oil. Uh, but it's probably not as negative for Ontario as it would be for Alberta.
0: Okay. Um, the the uh, k- recent um, increase in interest rates by the uh, Bank of Canada is, is is that a... should You know, people see interest rate increase, and they get rattled, you know, because it, it filters down to mortgage rates and so on and so forth. But... You know, we haven't had a, a rise in, the, in our interest rates for, what, since 2007, I believe it is. Um, should we not be seeing that as a good thing, that, that it's an, a sign that our economy is better? Yeah, I think it
3: shows the Bank of Canada has a little bit more confidence in our economy. Uh, it also reflects in this latest IMF forecast. I think it's probably one of the reasons that even though they're saying we're going to grow uh, particularly well, this year, that next year's Canada's growth is going to be a little bit lower, that's partly a reflection of the effect these higher interest rates are going to have. As you've probably noticed, the Canadian dollar has gone up. That's also partly in response to the increase in interest rates. It means that people who go to shop in the United States are going to get a little bit better bargains, but because of that, that actually reduces a little bit of demand in Canada.
0: What about all the political, you know, ramble about, from Donald Trump and the Trump administration about, you know, changing trade deals and, and upending things, uh, and, and how is that affecting the outlook where Canada is concerned by other, other nations?
3: So that's a negative factor. I think that it was probably a more negative factor three or four months ago, uh, when it looked like what Trump might do would be particularly serious for Canada. Uh, the latest information seems to be that it's not going to be particularly hard for for Canada uh, maybe harder for Mexico uh, We'll see how that turns out I do think that it matters that uh, the policy environment in the United States is more uncertain than it used to be but I don't think it matters that much for Canada I think it matters a little bit but not so much
0: how, how uh, important are um, are these types of of predictions uh, these these updates and how accurate are they uh, that that are put out by groups like the International Monetary Fund? Do, are they to be taken seriously? Or are they to be taken with a grain of salt or somewhere in between? Well, you have to take them with a grain
3: of salt because it's just inherently a hard thing to do to forecast the economy. We're talking about just Canada alone. Yeah, We're talking about the economic transactions involving 35 million people and all the complications that are in our daily lives. It's just multiplied by the country as a whole. And then Canada is only two, three percent of the world economy. And so we're talking about what's going on in all these other countries and, of course, all the countries interact with each other. And the IMF forecast does probably as well as possible. Uh, It's probably the best of the forecasts, which is why we take it more seriously than the others. And probably on the margin, there will be a few firms that will make a few more investment decisions towards Canada uh, because the picture looks a little brighter uh, and partly because of this IMF forecast. But again, we shouldn't talk about this as a bonanza or something spectacular. This is just modestly good news, uh, things moving in the right direction, but nothing that's going to uh, change us dramatically.
0: There was a lot of talk for a, a, a brief period of time. I haven't seen too much of it in the media lately about China and uh, how they were, their wages were starting to increase and costs were starting to increase of manufacturing over there to the point where um, some American-based companies were... Uh, talking about reshoring jobs, bringing jobs back to the United States because it was no longer, uh, you know, there was no economic advantage anymore to having things made over in China. Uh, is, is that is that still the trend? Are we are we seeing any of that happening? And could Canada uh, benefit from reshoring? Or is there any, any uh, new news on that?
3: Uh, there's a little bit of that, but I think that. That primarily those sorts of firms are actually going to go to other places where okay. there the hasn't been the wage burst. Uh, uh, some of the uh, Indo Chinese countries, uh, sorry, uh, countries like uh, Thailand or um, countries like that, uh, Vietnam. Uh, so I think there's some moving out of China to to other places. I think sub-Saharan uh, Africa has got a little bit more growth going, which is very good news. Uh, the last year's growth was 1.5%. One, one this year it's going to be closer to 3%. Uh, China itself, despite what you say, which is true, China is still looking at growth that's going to be pretty close to 7% this year. and That's a little bit of an upgrade from the previous IMF forecast. So China is going along well. Like any country developing, uh, once you're on this growth path, they do have the prospect of much faster growth than in an already developed country like Canada. Um, but part of that growth path is making the changes that need to be uh, made to get out of uh, low wage industries and into industries in which uh, the wages are a little bit higher, where people aren't just doing the most basic skills, but are taking advantage of some of their education and doing more advanced things. And I think China is on that path. I think we'll see China continue to grow. But part of it will mean that some of the industries that were in China will locate other places. Sometimes they'll they'll reshore, as you say. Uh, other times, if they're fundamentally low-wage industries, they'll just look for other places where the wages are low.
0: The, the economies seem to be, uh, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, more fragile than... Then the average person might think that they are. I mean, uh, you get a bunch of wildfires in in Fort McMurray, and that has a that can have a very strong negative economic effect. Uh, what are some of the other examples of things that can really, um, you know, cause economic damage uh, to countries?
3: Yeah. So, I in the if, in the two thousands, you remember we had a dot com bust uh, where there was a sudden fall in the stock market as everybody decided technology stocks were worth a lot less than they thought. And then more importantly, there was the financial crisis of uh, 2008 where uh, a big fall in the stock market and led to serious repercussions for the rest of the economy in the United States, Canada, and and elsewhere. And then subsequent to that, we had the kind of knock-on crises involving uh, Greece, for example, and uh, some countries like Italy, Spain, Ireland. And so... Uh, there's been a feeling that the economy was fragile. And in fact, I think that was what was holding back the economy uh, during the period from, say, 2008 to now. And gradually what's happening is we're emerging from it. And so these modest growth uh, figures, the reason we're celebrating them is that they uh, secede uh, earlier growth, which was much, much slower. And so things will pr- presumably get a little bit better. But the economy is fragile. We do have to worry about the fact that uh, we're not really into a solid, sustainable growth path yet.
0: Okay. Michael Veal, uh, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. Thanks for uh, sharing some time with us here this morning and helping us uh, understand all of this a little bit better. Do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye for now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
0: Construction in our city has seen a 35% increase this year compared to the last one, says a new report from the city of Hamilton. The actual number of permits is down. Uh, What does this spell for the city? Well, um, this guy is the publisher of uh, a newspaper called The Bay Observer. He's observing everything that goes on in our city. John Best back with us. Hi, John. Great to be with you. This are you is, doing? I'm doing fine. This is a um, uh, th- th- this is an interesting thing. I mean, I suppose uh, this still fits into the good news category. Hamilton construction boom continuing uh, despite uh, a, a drop in permits, and we're seeing money uh, construction projects that have to do with water and wastewater uh, treatment. Um, we're seeing uh, construction in residential. Um, increasing by twenty two percent, and we're seeing lots of other other things going on. What's your take on all of this?
4: Well, it's uh, it is good news, of course, when when you have this kind of economic activity. Um, but I think part of it um, is, uh, as as you noted, the number of permits is down, and the dollar volume is is greatly up. And I think that's partly a reflection of, of simply the inflationary increases in the. Uh, in housing prices.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's That's been uh, something that uh, experts have been keeping an eye on for a while, and we're, we're starting to see a little bit of cooling uh, in that sector, according to the people that follow real estate trends. Uh, more listings starting to come on the market, and, and homes taking a little bit uh, longer to sell. But overall, I can't remember a time in our city when we had this many Ah, uh, things to talk about that were progressive in nature.
4: No, it it, it is good news, and if you look at it, just look at the number. I mean, if it's seven hundred and twenty-four million in the first six months, then that that translates into almost a billion and a half dollars on an annual basis, and that would undoubtedly be the biggest year we've ever had in terms of building permits in Hamilton. I mean, we've uh, we've kind of got used to the idea that we do about a billion dollars a year, and, and I, of course, can remember the first time we hit the billion mark. It was a major milestone, and uh, you know, and it was well publicized. But uh, a billion and a half—that's a—that's uh, a huge increase, and uh, there's no question that um, you know, even though part of it is public works. Uh, you know that that really is only amounting to about 75 million dollars that big water project uh in the east end so there there's just a lot of uh, a lot of growth and uh as the report indicates uh, a lot of it uh, a huge amount of it is still residential even though you know the we've struggled here in Hamilton to try to rebalance uh you know the industrial and commercial with residential it's it's still residential that uh, is is leading uh, this category, and it's uh, you know it, it's a good thing, but there's you know there's always the, there's a, a debate about whether the taxation that we get from residential ultimately covers the life cycle cost of uh, residential. So right?
0: Yeah, and and yeah, in the good old days, of course, we you know as some people still call it the good old days the days when we were booming because we were an industrial capital of the country. Uh, we had all of that tax money rolling in from from industry, and and the burden on the backs of a residential taxpayer weren't nearly as as arduous. Um, and of course, that shifted a, a great deal. And and there's more and more pressure on residential taxpayers to uh, to foot the bill. There's also this big shift, John. Um, you know, from people who are going to be living in you know typically single detached homes to to condominiums and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the tall building type condominiums as well. There's a there's a whole age shift. I guess it's age related or is it? I mean, I mean, I tend to think of the boomers downsizing and that kind of thing and making moves. But we also have young people at the other end of the thing new to our city coming in who say we just don't we don't want all that space. We're just happy to live in a smaller space and have more experiences with our money than have things
4: well there's still there's still certainly demand for new condos and we've got them popping up all over uh... hamilton particularly in the downtown area um... but you know i i think a lot of boomers are, and i i've been doing some reading on this um, a lot of boomers are, are are certainly thinking about downsizing but then when they actually approach the actual downsizing it it becomes a a bit problematic because uh, if if you're a boomer and and you've kind of been living for the last ten years with your house essentially paid off, uh, all of a sudden you're encountering something called condo fees, and some of them can be ridiculously high. You you, you know you can be it's almost like having a mortgage again. So you 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 transfer your equity uh, to to purchase the unit, and maybe there's a little left over, uh, but you end up with uh, condo fees that. Uh, Frankly, a, a lot of people that have been living mortgage-free for a few years are, are a little reluctant to take on. So it's uh, and and then at the other end of the age spectrum, um, young people definitely. It's partly an affordability issue. Let's face it. I mean, to buy a single detached home in Hamilton is becoming uh, very very expensive for a first-time buyer. But uh, and the, so naturally they're attracted to condos. But. You know, young people get married, and uh, when you start having a couple of kids running around uh, in a 600 square foot condo, I think uh, suddenly the the dream of home home ownership shifts a little bit, and you're starting to look for more space.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting times in our city, and every every time I turn around. You know, people are saying Hamilton is hot right now, whether they're talking about music, whether they're talking about restaurants, whether they're talking about uh, quality of life. Hamilton's the hot thing. Did you ever think that we'd be having a discussion about that? No,
4: I mean, there were a lot of years uh, when uh, you and I were covering the city for television, and uh, certainly back then it just seemed to be one closure after another but you know one of the interesting things about Hamilton and, and it's uh, something that I regret is is that I, I still think you know within our community and uh, even in uh, among our leadership in some cases I don't think they they really um, have a full appreciation of how this local economy works and uh, I was just looking at at something that was produced by Deloitte for the city economic development department on advanced manufacturing uh, and uh, was somewhat surprised to see that we still have fifty four thousand jobs in this city that are uh, described as advanced manufacturing hmm. now if you take a look at the at the two steel mills uh, you know we're looking at maybe six thousand jobs there where at one time that would have been twenty so what has happened and I think what kind of gets missed is that we still have a very serious um, manufacturing economy here and the reason it's called advanced manufacturing i read one thing it said, it said if you're not in advanced manufacturing you're not in business anymore it's all advanced now but we we have smaller companies that don't pop up on the radar screen uh employing 100 200 maybe even 50 employees they're exporting products all around the world and frankly they're pretty much under the radar screen uh, i'm going to be doing an interview tomorrow with a company uh, for my next edition of the bay observer uh, a company that is exporting product uh, primarily to china Wow and, and you know There's we, a switch well exactly and and I mean this is the kind of stuff that I think needs to be better understood in Hamilton because uh, you know, we're in a situation right now where they're talking about what's going to happen with the uh, the, the the Stelco lands that right. that are not uh, going to be used for steel making, and it's really important that that we consider making sure that manufacturing can continue to happen on that property. I, I think most people are on the right page as far as that goes, but you know, you occasionally hear about somebody wanting to. Uh, you know maybe put residential closer to that area or or convert a lot of it to uh, open space and that's not the place to do it uh we we really need to ensure that we have the ability to attract uh manufacturing industry our education system in Hamilton is geared towards supporting that with Mohawk and and uh and some of the great things that Mac is doing so you know, we we don't want to get into a situation uh, where we can't expand because we don't have any place to put these industries. And you can you can do all the brochures in the world about what a great vibrant city Hamilton is and what a super vibe it has. But at some point, you have to attract employers. And um, advanced manufacturing is an area where the wages are better than average. Uh, people can build a life on those kind of wages, uh, unlike what you're going to get at the retail or the specialty coffee sector.
0: So yeah. all right,
4: have to have a balanced view.
0: Makes sense to me. John Best, uh, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, thanks uh, for spending a few minutes with us here today. always love to chat with you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 645 or star 9900. I want to bring Jeff Pakin into the conversation. He's the president of New Horizon Development Group. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the program this morning
5: thanks Jimmy.
0: great to be here Jeff uh, you you' you're aptly aware of, uh, of what's going on in our city economically because your your company and and some of your other develop developer friends in the community have been doing a, a great deal of work uh, in the lower city creating uh, new spaces creating new developments. Um, what do you make of uh, of this We're still in a construction boom is it is is it still boom time for you guys? Well,
5: I, I, I don't know that uh, in in the lower city, I would call it a boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's nice to see that there's a market. It's been so many years that there was no market at all, and uh, it, it's comforting to see that, that people are now making a decision that downtown is a place they're happy to and willing to live, and um, it, it's it's. It seems to be getting better, but uh, if, if you want to see a boom, I think you need more than three cranes in the air.
0: Okay. Is it, it, when, when it comes to deciding where you're going to place uh, the next development or, or try to uh, create a, a new development, um, do you build it first and, and they come, or do you know they're going to come before you crack uh, the ground?
5: Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, the, the majority of the people would be uh, making sure they're going to come before they crack the ground. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you, most of us uh, require some sort of uh, financial support from a, a lending institution, and they like to see some sales first to uh, confirm that what we think people want is actually proven that it's something people want. Uh, but it's, you know, the the uh, stick your neck out there and, and market in a place where nobody's bought a brand new condo in 25 years was a, a tough decision. And uh, it was nice to see that it, we got a yes when we did do it a few years back.
0: Is it difficult, uh, Jeff, has anything changed? Uh, we used to hear that City Hall, for example, was, was difficult to deal with if you were a developer in this city heard that for a lot of years is is there a change taking place there is it easier to do business uh, with city hall so that a uh, development can take place at a, at a faster pace uh th- there's a time when no comment is appropriate <laughs> <laughs> because, because
5: okay. uh, we, do, we do still rely on them to uh help us advance our, our cause and we like to work together and we like to hope that things are getting better and um
0: I'll just leave it at that. Oh, okay. All right. We'll uh, we'll read between uh, the the lines uh, on that one. Um, it seems to me that I, I'm seeing so so many condo developments uh, going up. I mean, you, you, your company has has produced several. Uh, we see um, the the Royal Cannot project happening. We see others. Uh, are they? I, I sometimes drive by and think, are they going to be? Have they sold all these? Are they going to be able to fill up all these spaces? You guys obviously know something.
5: Well, I can tell you that it, once you see construction, chances are they're at least 75% sold. Wow. So I, I know in the case of the Cannot, um, I believe their phase one is completely sold out. I know in the case of our city square that phase three, we have, uh, you know, 93% sold out or something. So it's, it, it the market has responded by the time you see construction going on, uh, appropriately. And it, it's exciting. I mean, the, The city needs new residents downtown that bring the ability to shop downtown and support the other merchants in order to make sure that, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that nobody goes downtown because nobody lives downtown. Well, that's going to change and is changing, and uh, it just allows everything to the bar to be raised for everybody let's say.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself Jeff Pakin president of New Horizon Development Group thanks for uh being with us here for a few minutes this morning I appreciate your insights into this stuff.
5: Thanks you my pleasure take care
0: you too bye for now.
1: The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML